Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. It's a great honor to be here. Thank you to Philip and thank you to the Institute. And uh, as Philip said, uh, this is really a legacy project uh, in, in, for the late, uh, great Hillary Ballin, um, Deputy Vice Chancellor, who uh, was, was not only uh, a colleague, but also a wonderful friend. And uh, uh, I, I really miss her a lot. And so I, I will, hopefully when this book is finally completed, it will be up to her standards. Um, anyway, uh, well, I'd like to do a couple different things tonight. I'm going to start by uh, giving a brief overview of some of my projects uh, and then uh, segue into uh, the pictures that I made in Abu Dhabi here in 2009 and 2010. Uh, and I think the city has much changed since then. And then in, uh, after that, I'm going to reference um, a project called Cities of the Future. This was uh, something I recently worked on for National Geographic that'll be published next month. And uh, I'm gonna use some of the outtakes from that project to uh, uh, show kind of what's happening in terms of cities around the world, uh, good and bad examples of what the city of the future might be, and then put that in relationship to Abu Dhabi, and then end with a few uh, pictures of the campus that I shot in 2014. So, um, get a glass of water here too. Uh, so uh, let's, and it's very bright in here. I'm sorry for, the, they need the lights to, to film me. Uh, so uh, normally I'd love to, to have the pictures more in the dark so you can see them, but uh, anyway, so I am the son of an architect. Uh, my mother uh, edited books about art history. I started taking pictures when I was about 12. So um, this, this will mark my 50th year as a photographer. Um, uh, those three things, uh, photography, architecture, and history, really inform all of what I do. And um, uh, I, I love looking at things over time, and I love looking at the layers of space architecture and, and the storytelling nature of that. So I would say that's a kind of general principle of what I do. I've lived in New York for almost 40 years, and... Uh, uh, in the early 80s, I was living downtown on South Street. That's right near the South Street Seaport, right across from the tall ships. And at that time, uh, the Rouse Company out of Boston was considering developing the seaport area, and they eventually built a big mall there. So uh, I would go out and I take pictures of this area. So this, is, uh, this first picture shows the corner of Fulton and Front Street. You see a closed-up uh, fishmonger's. I mean, they, they, they open up very early in the morning, the restaurateurs and, and middlemen come and buy fish. Uh, and in the background, of course, the iconic uh, Brooklyn Bridge, the great connector between Manhattan and Brooklyn, uh, finished in 1883. And if you think about it, really built by hand. And then over to the left, just the first signs of this uh, oncoming development, which uh, ultimately took over the entire area and displaced the fish market to the Bronx. Um, but one of the parts of New York that I've always loved is Times Square. Uh, Times Square in the um, 70s, 80s, 90s, walking across 42nd Street between 7th and 8th on a Saturday night was a really 
a huge adrenaline rush, if, you, if any of you ever experienced that. Um, the movie Taxi Driver and many other films uh, give a sense of the kind of the energy and the seediness and uh, just the raw intensity of that block. Um, this picture was made in 2002. This is Howard Johnson's on 46th Street and Broadway. This is the last little remnant of the old Times Square. But back in 1995, oops, sorry, went the wrong way. Uh, it looked like this, this is the Empire Theater, and you can see this theater that's been shut down and turned into kind of storefront for fake IDs and uh, uh, various paraphernalia, sex toys, um, eight millimeter movies and so forth. Now, this is 1995, and you have to imagine that a mere seven years later, it became this, sort of the, the junk food of architecture. Architecture is a, just a machine with signs attached to it, a kind of soulless machine of that. And so that, what some people call the disnification, but really it, it's just the, 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 the nature of cities that they, that what's decrepit and decayed will come back and, and be, have a new kind of chapter of life, but eventually this will decay and become uh, another form of that uh, previous uh, existence. Now, theaters, uh, speaking of theaters, uh, in the late 90s, um, I got a clue that Havana, that it was possible to, for an American to travel to Cuba. I got a license from the Treasury Department, and I originally went there uh, with the hopes of photographing old theaters, especially old movie theaters. And when I, when I arrived, I realized it wasn't just the theaters, it was the whole city of Havana it was such a... Uh, such a paradox of, of waste and no waste in the sense that nothing was wasted and yet the entire city was in a sense wasted. People's lives had been wasted. Um, this is the uh, great uh, Campo Mor, Teatro Campo Mor, uh, which was a, a light opera house where Plaza Domingo's father sang and Ernest Hemingway read from this stage. Uh, and there had been a fire in the 60s, I believe, and the government uh, just let the just let the building slowly decay, just slowly, slowly fall apart. At the same time, it was being used as a garage for bicycle taxis and motorcycles. And there, there was even a guy living on the, the balcony on the second floor. You can kind of see his laundry up there. So in a way, everything was used, everything was occupied, but in, in, in that strange way. Uh, and then this picture, which is called Via Blanca, this is the road from... Havana to the beaches of Veradero, about two hours away. This is Cuba's largest uh, highway bridge. It was finished in 1960, right after Fidel's uh, revolution. And um, what's interesting is so you, you have this highway cutting through the jungle. For me, this has always been a kind of very image of the future. You know, what I saw at the World's Fair in 1965 in the GM pavilion of the of the Futurama of this, you know, the progress going through the middle of the untamed nature. And yet here on this bridge, we see one car, one lone car from the 1950s. And then the picture was made in 2012. So you have to ask yourself sort of exactly what, 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 in what time does this picture exist? And this was ultimately used on the cover of uh, the New York Times Magazine with the tagline, where is Cuba going? So speaking, but when I was in Cuba, uh, a lot of the uh, people I met had studied in Russia. They'd gotten uh, scholarships to go to, to Leningrad, and they said, oh, you must go to Russia. It's so amazing. Everything's so big. 
And, and I, I was fortunate to get a magazine assignment uh, that sent me to uh, St. Petersburg. This would be in 2000. And uh, yeah, things surely were big. This is uh, the, what's called the General Staff Arch. It was designed by an Itar uh, Italian architect named Rastrelli. Uh, in the mid-ground is uh, what's called Alexander's Column. It's a, it's a sculpture of an angel with the face of the czar on it. And then in the rear is uh, Catherine's Palace also, uh, which has is the Hermitage Museum. And so this is a very, very peaceful, very beautiful, very aesthetic setting, probably the most beautiful public space in Russia, but also one that has seen some of the greatest violence, uh, the uh, 1905 Bloody Sunday and obviously the, the coup in uh, 1917. Now, as a metaphor for Russia, I always like this picture. It's an icebreaker. It's been, uh, this is in a shipyard, also in St. Petersburg. It's been freshly repainted in this orange-red color because to kind of cut through the Arctic gloom. And uh, it's a little hard to see on the side, but there's a man standing at the bottom there with a little blue scarf who would have stood there for hours for me. And uh, when I'm taking pictures of architecture, I'm usually very carefully leveling the frame, both backwards and, and sideways. And when I got the negative back of this picture, I noticed that the, the ship you can see it's slightly healing over. So you have this large, looming orange mass slightly healing over. And for me, that was a very kind of image of Russia itself. And, and I also believe that in, in Russian, the, the root of the word for beautiful is also the word for red. So red is a very uh, uh, important, very vital color in the Russian culture. But having traveled a lot, uh, I felt somewhat always displaced that there was a kind of exoticism, that there was a kind of, that, that I was always at somewhat at arm's length, even not, not just because of the language, but because I didn't really understand things down to uh, a macro level. I wanted to be able to look at the ground and see a candy wrapper and be like, oh yeah, that's a Mars bar. That's, I understand what that is. I understand, I understand a deeper narrative about the things I'm photographing. So uh, in 2000, starting kind of in 2007, I, I made a trip, many trips to, to started visiting Detroit. Uh, this is in the famous Rouge plant out in Dearborn. Uh, this was where they made steel. It's the back end. This is an enormous complex and in fact, at this time, in, in 2008, when I took this picture, um, the Ford Motor Company had sold off their steel-making operations to a Russian steel so this steel company. So this actually was owned by the Russians at the time that I was photographing it. Um, anyway, this is this vast sort of melancholic space, a kind of, uh, you know, it wants the kind of the grandeur of the American empire uh, and, and completely... Empty. I mean, when I was there on uh, June 2008, I mean, this plant, which sometimes had 100,000 workers, uh, there were maybe 30 or 40 security guards. I mean, it was complete. It was a, it, just a ghost town. Um, and then this picture from 2009 called Henry's Office. This is Henry Ford's. This is was Henry Ford's executive suite when he was building the Model T in the uh, late teens. And what you're seeing is the, uh, 
the, the remnant of the old wool carpet that was in, literally in his office. And over time, that, that's, that wool carpet has decayed into organic matter. Now, we're saying this building had been unoccupied since probably the 50s or 60s, so 50 years. You know, and, and I was able to get into it through a whole sort of shenanigans. But that, that wool carpet decayed, turned into organic matter, and out of it grew carpet moss or kind of moss. And so in the void left by man's absence, nature has returned, but in this very sort of toxic mode. Um, I'm sorry. Um, and anyway, that's... Um, and, and the last point is that... So this... Um, let me just go back for a second. Uh, so these pictures stirred a controversy in the States, in particular called ruin porn. And myself and some other people who had been photographing these uh, structures in Detroit were accused of a lack of empathy with workers who had worked in these factories, uh, that we didn't provide a, enough um, context for the failures of capitalism, and that you know, we should have been photographing the, the displaced people of Detroit. Uh, I kind of took exception to that. I, I felt that for me to photograph uh, an auto worker sitting in their living room with a caption that said, you know, Bill Smith worked in the factory for 50 years and he was laid off and he has no options to be retrained. That, that, was, a, that was a different model of photography. That the, the point of Detroit in 2008 and 2009 was its emptiness. That, the, that, that Detroit that two-thirds of the population had left, that these factories were empty. And so the emptiness itself, for me, was the metaphor, not the, not, not the fact that somebody had lost their job. I mean, that was important, but the metaphor at the time was the emptiness. And, that's, and, and, and I felt that the whole ruin porn controversy itself was actually pretty superficial. And nobody really talks about ruin porn anymore anyway. But um, anyway, so... Um, Kind of moving on from that theme about emptiness, uh, uh, my subsequent project was uh, on the, the very center of the United States, along the 100th meridian. If you think of Texas and the east border of the Panhandle, that's exactly the 100th meridian, or Dodge City in Kansas. So the 100th meridian runs straight down through North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. It's, it's right in the middle. And these were the lands that were last homesteaded in the United States because the very harsh conditions, very poor moisture, very difficult for agriculture without uh, irrigation, um, extreme weather, um, a, a lot of issues. And, but people had come from all over the world. I mean, if you look at the works of Willa Cather, you, you get a sense of, of people, of the, of the, the pull that the, the prairie and the frontier exerted on people from around the world to come and to, to find a piece of land that they could call their own. And so it was very populated. Uh, and the, the, the peak population is probably right before World War I, and it slowly declines. So now we get to this place where this empty land is no longer beckoning us, but is uh, become flyover country. It's to be avoided at all costs. So I was interested in that phenomenon. Uh, but there's also... I, and, you, and in this picture, which is called the Yellow Porch, you see not only uh, this is sort of late winter and it's been, it's been a very dry winter, there's a lot of drought, so everything's this brown color. 
but you also see the yellow porch. And that's, you know, the woman around the place who decided, you know, I'm going to paint that porch yellow and try to add a little life to this place. So I always try to have a, an emotional counterpoint in my work, something that's, it may be gloomy, it may be melancholic, but there's also some other, maybe a fragment of hope or a sliver of, of dreams that somehow uh, invested and uh, manifest in the picture. Uh, so, for instance, in this, which could be a very banal scene of a bunch of ranchers selling their cows, this sale barn has turned into kind of a mystical uh, theater where uh, these uh, very solid, uh, uh, solid, uh, solid um, stationary ranchers are have this uh, are watching what this uh, herd of cattle turned into this kind of mystical world, and in fact. Um, what happens is they'll bring in cows and they'll maybe a herd of 30 or 40 of them will spin around in this, this arena. And um, that created that kind of black uh, mass. Uh, and there was one cow with a white spot on its head and he was right in the middle. So he created the center of that uh, whirlpool. And then, uh, as Philip mentioned, my, my newest project, which is called Blue Alabama, uh, which will be published in the fall, uh, I've been working on that for the past mm, three or four years, and it's really about the complex emotional landscape of the South, the mixture of fear, cruelty, beauty, spirituality that the South embodies, and especially in Lower Alabama, which is probably the most forgotten about, neglected part of the South, but also a place where the civil rights movement really was spawned in the Pettus Bridge, the March to Selma, I mean, the March to Montgomery. Um, so it's, it's historically such a uh, vital place and yet uh, uh, kind of forgotten about. So the book is, deals with various narrative strains of that part of the South. Um, this is a Jewish social club in Selma, um, a potential meeting place, potential place of reconciliation. Not that it can or will happen, but it's the possibility. And this, uh, an all-black house, actually, it's covered in heart pine boards that have never been stained or painted. And so those pine boards, these are ancient pine trees. These are four or 500-year-old pine trees that were cut down in the 1850s and made into these boards. Age over time to this beautiful tobacco black color. Um, and this black house is photographed by moonlight. But this is sort of standing in contrast to the kind of typical white-columned antebellum uh, uh, mansion that uh, one imagines in uh, the Old South. And then there's Abu Dhabi. <laughs> so in, um, I had worked with Hilary Ballin on this book about Robert Moses, and then she was take, stolen away by NYU, and uh, she had told me about this project. And she said, "You know, we we need to do we need to we need to show what Abu Dhabi looks like. Nobody looks, nobody knows what Abu Dhabi looks like. We have we, let's have, come over, photograph it, so we can g give the students a, a sense of what this place looks like." And um, you know, sure enough, there are. This is actually a guy living out in the desert, and he's a falcon keeper, and uh, great. Uh, uh, I, I love that, but I mean, Mo, I mean, Abu Dhabi is really about this. It's about tearing things down and building things up at the same time. And and for me, what was 
most challenging was, I mean, having seen what I, what I do and what I'm interested in, I mean, if things started in 1971 and I'm there in 2009, that's, what, 38? Um, um, anyway, it's not a long period of time, and, and all those layers of history are so compressed. Uh, it was really a challenge for me to, to, to deal with a place that literally, for me, had very little history, very little uh, depths of history, very, very few layers. Um, so I had to come up with a lot of visual strategies about how to kind of pull those layers apart and how to tell the story of the city. So one way was to, you know, obviously show the contrast between the, the you know, the, uh, the, 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 the bottom and the top, you know, the, the, the different classes of things, different classes of people, different, you know, styles of building, um, uh, something old and new. This, um, and again, uh, I had to, I mean, this was one strategy, but this is a kind of very simple strategy for me. It's a sort of like one thing against something else. Uh, so uh, as time went on, I began to, again, I was here in 2009, 2010 for a couple trips, looking at the density of this and, and trying to, again, find deeper layers. So here's a small mosque downtown. And I love the guy. He's at the bottom down there, um, kind of sweeping the doorway. Um, so trying to build up this sort of vertical landscape in Abu Dhabi. And of course, there are place, open spaces, you know, places of leisure, places of, of luxury in a sense, and also kind of very rundown uh, apartment buildings for the workers. And then the, the founder's image in, in places like a mall. So again, trying to begin to look at very sort of Layering, but in a different way, because I, I didn't have sort of the usual modes of, of, of history to kind of uh, fall back on. Um, but what, so what I ended up really uh, loving was these small concrete buildings, probably built in the 80s or 90s, that were being torn down as I, as I was photographing them, but, but had a kind of uh, charm in the context of Abu Dhabi. And I, I, I loved them, even though they're, you know, perhaps not masterpieces of architecture, but in their kind of idiosyncratic way, they really stood out for me in the landscape of Abu Dhabi, and I felt that they were probably the most threatened part of the city. And so I love the, the little retail level and then the um, residential. I love, I love buildings that combine in a kind of intimate scale the residential and commercial aspects. Or in this case, um, where you know, modernism with a nod to the history of Islamic architecture and standing very boldly in contrast, it's unfinished concrete compared to all the glass uh, towers around it. Uh, I believe this building is called the Honeycomb Building. Um, and so this kind of odd futurism, this sort of 80s uh, futuristic style of building, um, uh, again, something. This was one of my initial focuses uh, photographing the city, and I have to emphasize this: is, this book and this whole project is kind of a work in progress. I probably, I may go back to these various spots and see what's happened to see if, how this building has either been torn down or changed or renovated. Uh, it'd be very interesting to see that because I, I do feel in Abu Dhabi that not only are the layers of history collapsed, but even time itself has collapsed in a way. sort of charming uh, uh, street life and the, the um, 
I don't know, the kind of vibrant street life that was here for me. And again, with the image of the founder. Uh, one of my favorite buildings was the is the taxi stand. And in this view, you, you can see how the stepped uh, roofs uh, mimic the, the, the steps of the, the stadium in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the distance there. And then underneath, it has this sort of tent-like structure, which I love. And this, I think this is the bus station. It's great uh, uh, pillars here. And uh, the command station outside is great. Again, this kind of almost Brazilian style of futurism. It's like people are building, like this is going to be a new city and this is what a new city looks like. This is the future. And of course, one of my favorite places, the airport, the old airport terminal, which looks like the inside of the of a, of a genie's bottle, and that even and even the mosque at the officers' club has a little bit of that sense of kind of this futuristic style to it. And this picture, this is actually a, a private home, and this was my homage to uh, an American photographer who was actually a friend of mine and also an inspiration named Julius Shulman, who photographed a lot of 50s and 60s uh, uh, modernist architecture out in Los Angeles. This idyllic uh, oasis of home. But as I mentioned, I mean, things were being uh, uh, torn down very much as I, as I, you know, as much as I was trying to get to them, they were also being torn down. Um, and one of the things that's interesting in Abu Dhabi is that the lifespan of a building seems to be very short here. I mean, most buildings, I mean, they're built for a lifespan of maybe 100 years, sometimes more, sometimes less. You know, the, build, the old colonial buildings in, in Havana, Stone, they've been, they've been around four or 500 years. But it seems as though in Abu Dhabi, uh, the lifespan of a building might be only 15 years, which is really... Uh, kind of crazy, but that's that's how it's done here. Whereas the new construction, I mean, this is the Fountain of the Emirates Hotel, and then beyond, you see the construction. The cranes are actually moving. I mean, the, it's it's all night long. It's twenty four hours a day. The cycle of building something new. So I, I suppose if you're if if the construction cycle is that fast, if new buildings can go up that quickly, then maybe that justifies to some degree taking down buildings so quickly. I was also uh, fascinated by this contrast between the, the openness, this sort of sand, desert-like, the islands, and then all of a sudden a, a huge glass tower just arising out of nothing. I mean, there's no streets, there's no uh, roads, there's no shops. It's just you know, all of a sudden we have a huge uh, skyscraper in the middle of nowhere. This is the Norton Foster building, I think. Khalifa. What is it? Uh, okay. Is it not by Norman Foster? Okay, sorry. But people compare it to an up, up sideways coin, right? <laughs> and here, this is when the, the mosque the, uh, was being finished, the uh, Sheikh Zayed Mosque. And uh, I love the contrast between the, uh, 
the magnificence of the domes and then the floor polishers out front, finishing off the terrazzo floors. <coughs> And the contrast between this amazing, vast, capacious interior and then this very modest, uh, almost homemade mosque. The call to prayer in an alleyway. Or overflowing the streets on a Friday. And the detail of that. And then I was also fascinated by these small um, bits of green, which will come up later in the about cities of the future, about these little green spaces. Here was a little, this was a little outdoor movie theater tucked in between these two buildings. And I love these sort of, like almost like a little pocket park, impromptu pocket park, contrasted against the, future, what's coming. And in the, the low rise with the trees, then that bit of greenery, how important that how important that is to a city. And again, here the, the contrast between the low rise residential neighborhoods with the greenery and the wall of uh, mirror glass around it. And how green spaces are so necessary in a city. That, that bit of openness, that bit of light coming through. The, so I, I enjoyed the vibrancy of the markets here in Abu Dhabi, as well as the car repair, the car repair shops. And then also photographed out in the sort of new suburbs of Khalifa. with their sort of 50s-style American uh, fantasy, as well as the McMansions, Abu Dhabi-style. And these sort of walled compounds, again, uh, keeping out, uh, sort of not in dialogue really with what's around them, just as sort of little islands, again, in the desert. So keep this in mind. So uh, then let's look at kind of the origin of, the, of what, what new cities are. So this is Letchworth in England. This was built in uh, 1903. This is the first planned city in the world. It's a garden city. It was supposed to be where the town and the country would meet in these cities. And so there were sort of serpentine roads to kind of give a kind of organic feel to the cities. They also had walkable green spaces. This is Welling Garden City, which is built about 15 years later. And again, you have a walkable green axis that runs right through the heart of the city. And these are still very viable principles. I mean, these cities are very much beloved in England. And for a reason in, in that they, they, have, uh, they, they combine the town and the country in such a, a, a meaningful, uh, uh, significant way and uh, allow for a certain quality of life. Now, other places like here, this is Rotterdam. Uh, this is a new market hall in Rotterdam. And here they've combined, when I talked about residential and commercial before, 
here's, here's a kind of very innovative example of that. You know, so you have this large sort of tubular building, and the, and, the, and the fat part of the tube, that's all apartments. So that's all residences. And then the inside of the tube is a big market hall with all kinds of shops and restaurants. And so in an urban setting, you have those two integrated in a very interesting, very innovative way. And then on the inside, you even have a huge mural of fruits and flowers and kind of nod to that, that country city uh, meeting point. Now, also, uh, this is a suburb outside of Amsterdam. This is called Oosterveld, and very unusual for uh, the Dutch people. This is a place where people are allowed to build whatever home they want. They're given the land, and the, 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 the condition is that not only do they have to build their own home, but they also have to work with their neighbors to build uh, the sewers and the electrical stations and develop the grid and build schools. I mean, everything comes from the bottom up here which is, uh, to a certain segment of the Dutch society, very appealing. Uh, that kind of freedom, that kind of sense of organizing, not from the top down, not being told, like, okay, here's how you do it, but being able to shape it from the bottom up. So in some cases, uh, this is a, uh, actually a, a, a global village being built by a very um, forward-thinking couple that's going to be home that will home that will house refugees, and so you see this sort of swirling kind of sort wheel-like uh, shape that kind of will be the center of the village. And there, and you see there the brick masonry buildings coming along, replacing the, the kind of temporary yurts. But this idea of a kind of organically evolved uh, village is very very interesting. And then in some cases you have. Um, Friends who got together and actually built like a little neighborhood all on their own. And here you can see a lot of solar panels. It's obviously very high tech, very green. Uh, but again, all working together to build a community. Now, uh, in terms of cities of the future and transportation, that's obviously going to be one of the biggest needs. Uh, right now, about 50% of the world's population lives in cities. Uh, by 2050, about two-thirds of the world will live in cities. And so... As cities become denser and denser, uh, how to get people how to get people to move around, how to how to move people around efficiently becomes one of the most important concerns for a city. So this is La Paz, Bolivia. This is the world's highest uh, capital city. It's at twelve thousand feet. It's in a bowl, uh, and then there's a plateau around it, and there's another city called El Alto. That's and that's kind of the uh, main city of the Aymara indigenous people. Um, anyway, La Paz had this problem that there, there was really no real efficient way to get people from point A to point B. Uh, there were buses, but very windy streets and taxis, uh, so the streets were super crowded. So La Paz uh, has become, uh, starting in 2014, they hired a German-Austrian company and they put in a series of these aerial cable cars. They're the world's uh, only uh, city in the world whose public transportation is based on the cable car system. And they have about nine lines now, and they're adding uh, three or four more in the next year or two. And, and it has really changed the way people go to school, the way they commute, the way they, uh, uh, the whole dynamic quality of La Paz has been utterly transformed by this you know, innovative transportation system. And it also provides amazing views of the city itself, so it's kind of fascinating to ride. And it also hasn't really interfered with the existing uh, structure of the streets, so they didn't have to tear out 
you know, cemeteries or other, you know, uh, you know, homes that were in the way. I mean, it, it went kind of right on top of that. So that sort of spatial uh, layering of the city is very interesting. And as a sidebar, uh, this is El Alto. So this is uh, the, the, the Aymara part. This is the flat plains up above uh, La Paz. Uh, there's an architect named uh, Freddy Mamami, who's uh, Aymara, and he started building uh, uh, cholets. These are um, homes for the kind of new wealthy uh, Aymara people and using not palladio, but using the textiles and the kind of uh, native designs of the of the Amara people as a foundation for his architectural practice. So this uh, incredibly painted building, or uh, this, uh, which is embodies, has a commercial level at the bottom. Uh, the kind of mid-level is, uh, is a, an event space, like a big banquet hall, because the Amara people have lots of celebrations and weddings and festivities, and they like to kind of gather together. And then the residence is on the top there. And, there's, and these, this is just kind of amazing works of art. Uh, and then there's been a sort of spinoff where people even use uh, you know, um, ideas from transformers to build their garage doors. So this uh, revolution in transportation has also spawned other uh, creative uh, pathways, let's say, in this country. Now, probably the most successful uh, futuristic city in the world is Singapore uh, on, on many levels. This is the Marina Sands uh, Casino and the garden, uh, Gardens by the Bay and Supertree Grove. Uh, I think uh, Singapore works on, on, on many levels. It's, it has this expressive architecture that's, that relates to its kind of dynamic culture. It has uh, a, a very, uh, it's not only are there green walkable pathways throughout the city, but in fact the buildings themselves are green they're covered in plants in some cases, with thin aluminous skins. Now, I mean, given that Singapore is close to the equator, it is a tropical climate, and things like this are possible. But, I mean, they exploit that, those possibilities to the fullest. Uh, here's another example of this. Kind of how, how the, the country, the idea of the country has literally invaded the architecture. Uh, but they've also um, set aside certain districts of the city. This is the Muslim quarter of Singapore. Uh, and um, so not only does, does this set aside, it, it not only creates architectural diversity, but also obviously cultural diversity. And, uh, and, and this difference of scale really adds, and these are protected areas by the government that add to the quality of life in Singapore overall. Not to mention that this is something, this is called the auto rider. This is the world's first uh, mass transit um, vehicle. And, and this is something that's obviously coming, they're experimenting with, but uh, you know, to have not only electric cars and driverless cars, but even mass transit, have driverless mass transit. Um, Shanghai, uh, it calls itself Little New York, but in fact, New York has Eight and a half, nine million people. Shanghai is 26 million. Uh, it's three times the size of New York. Obviously, transportation is a huge issue here. And so um, Shanghai has been very uh, aggressive about uh, building highways, but also having multi-layer tiers when you can see there's, a, there's a, a walkway, that red walkway, that's for pedestrians versus 
all the uh, uh, overpasses for cars. But what's interesting is they've taken this bit of infrastructure and through LED lighting, uh, turned it into a kind of sculptural aesthetic experience as well. So again, uh, reinventing the, the landscape of the city. But it does have a very authoritarian culture too. I mean, these are shaming boards. So there are cameras set up at certain intersections. And if you jaywalk, um, they project your image. You can see kind of on the screen, like the red bars. Are in. So the woman in the white shirt there, uh, she's just jaywalked. And so they've kind of filmed her. And I guess they'll get to the point where they'll actually flash your name and your ID number and stuff. Um, I mean, it's not popular, obviously. And... Um, People in Shanghai are like, oh, we don't, we, but in a lot of smaller cities, there's many of these things. Uh, lastly, we come to Baku, Azerbaijan. Uh, Baku is very famous. I mean, obviously another very oil wealthy country, but famous for this kind of trophy ar architecture, um, which I found beautiful, but, but almost out of context, out of sort of rising out of nowhere in a sense. Um, these are the famous flame towers. Uh, my understanding is one is hotel, one is um, residential, and one is empty. Uh, they light up at night. They have flames. There's soccer players. I mean, there's, they're spectacular objects. But I don't know really how integrated they are in terms of the, the overall urban fabric of, of Baku. I mean, there are some masterpieces there. This is Zaha Hadid's uh, Haida Cultural Center which is just an extraordinary building. Um, so along the way, you, you get some real winners. But overall, I am I, not certain about how trophy architecture really enhances the lives of the everyday uh, citizen of a city. Um, so now we're back to Sariat Island. Um, I was here in 2014 when the uh, campus was just finished, and so I had a lot of freedom to photograph the campus, but unfortunately there were very few people. So I'm back this time to photograph the campus, hopefully with um, more students and more, more life in, in the buildings. But if we, if we think about what we just saw in terms of cities and, and cities of the future, it's interesting to look at the campus uh, as, as a place where the green is embraced, uh, where there's multi-layers to it. So you have the high line, uh, this walkable space that connects uh, the city of the campus. And uh, I know this was one of uh, the architect's main preoccupations was this kind of, uh, this road connecting. So I think that that's a very, very successful part of the campus itself. Uh, and these shaded walkways um, through and, and the different, again, like in Letchworth with that turning road, these curving roads that create different perspectives as you walk on them, and, and as well as a kind of main walking street. And then also there's subsequent layers. You have this underground layer too, which I really, uh, I'm fascinated by. And so there's a sub-layer to, the, uh, to the entire universe. So as a city, it's very, it's very, it's very functional. It operates on a lot of principles of, of, of intelligent design. Um, the real question will be, um, you know, how, what gets built up around it, and how ultimately the campus.
campus is contextualized within the, the rest of Abu Dhabi. Anyway, thank you very much for your time. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.